0: Hello and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. I'm Mike Gomer-Gormley, and Dave, your face is enough, Van Vickle, will not be joining us today. He's super booked with his Catholic truth about angels, demons, ghosts, etc., etc. talk, and I'm just lazy, so there you go. We are going to do another special episode of me yelling at people. This one will be unique, though, because you'll get to hear two talks in this one show. They're both brief. The first was given to 250 confirmation students at my parish for their first large group session where they meet up as a huge group before they go off to class. So I want you to pay attention to how I use humor, a little bit of my own testimony, and also with a sympathetic awareness of their struggles and issues and stuff, and how I weave that with the gospel of Christ and how Christ answers, aids, and loves them. The second talk literally happened five minutes after I gave the first talk. Did the first talk in the youth room, finished, they were applauding me as I ran out the door, went into the church, and spoke to our lectors for the lector training at my parish. I was given about 25 minutes to explain to them the gravity and beauty of being proclaimers of God's word. So, I want you to listen for how I connect their task as lectors with their own personal spirituality and the goal of conversion. Now, I know what you're thinking. How come we get to hear Gomer's talks and not Dave's? There are two reasons. First, Dave doesn't know how to use technology and is generally scared of anything with electricity in it. So, he doesn't ever record his talks. Second, I'm a narcissist, and I believe that every word I say ought to be preserved for posterity. So almost every talk I give, I record with my handy-dandy iPhone in my shirt pocket. So once we get Dave on the old narcissist train, I'm sure we will be bringing much more of his applicable talks to every knee shall bow. Finally, don't forget to buy everything at ascensionpress.com, especially the Bible study on the book of Romans that you'll hear about a little later in the show. Let's begin. I used to do youth ministry. I actually was a teenager, uh, a, a young, young, handsome teenager back in the, well, Some of you are laughing. That's weird. Um, it's not like that's a wound. Uh, back when, before this building was built, back when we were still meeting at Oak Ridge, I was one of the founding families. I was a nerdy little kid. Um, I'm sure that shocks every one of you. But now I do Adolphe formation. So I was a youth minister. My first day was when they built this room and uh, I made some popcorn and I didn't turn it off and it cooked for 10 minutes <laughs> and it filled the entire school. This is the day before the school opened, filled the entire school with burnt popcorn smell, all because I figured out how to hook. A Super Nintendo to the projectors, and I was playing it on a ten foot screen and I was completely ignoring the fact that I mutilated popcorn so That's my history, and yeah, it's very spiritual. Um, Okay, so what I want to do is just want to introduce you to your confirmation year. I am not your confirmation teacher. I'm not going to be, you're not really going to see much of me. Um, I know that's a tragedy, but what I just wanted to do, every year they ask me to come out and talk in the beginning, and the reason why I do this is I know many of you, if not about half of you, do not know, but are uh, leaning pretty strongly that you don't even believe in God, right? And I understand that, because when i I was your age. I was right in the same place. Back in my day, I believed that the the Christian proposition was too fanciful. That it couldn't be real, and I struggled with it, right? I wanted to be anything other than Catholic, mostly because my mom was the director of religious education at our church, my dad was in the Knights of Columbus, and we were all super active in our small church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. But I did not want anything to do with Catholicism, and I looked for every reason. But here's the problem. I am a nerd. Nerds hate open loops. I had to close the loop, and I struggled with whether or not God existed. My problem was... Uh, I was a teenager when the internet more or less was born, so they didn't have blogs then, they just called them articles, and I would read literally hundreds of articles by atheists, agnostics, theists, deists, and all sorts of people who argued all sorts of claims. And here's the problem. All of my friends, when I moved to the woodlands and I worked at the Cynthia Woods Mitchell Pavilion, um, all of my friends didn't really go to church or any of that stuff, and i say, oh, you're an atheist, and they're like, no, not really. I mean, maybe God exists. And I said, oh, so you, you, you know what? I couldn't figure out what they were. I found out they belonged to the religion of meh. M-E-H, all lowercase, period. Does God exist? Meh. Oh, he doesn't? Meh. Like, they didn't really care. But see, as a nerd, my problem was the truth claims. If God is real, then, not, then, then I'm not God. If God is not real, then it doesn't matter. Because if it doesn't matter, there's no ultimate standard, no foundation of absolute goodness. Therefore, there's no gradations of goodness. Therefore, there's no such thing as right and wrong, good or bad. There's only the advantageous and the unadvantageous. And so what I began doing was studying this stuff because I had to know, not to feel, not to have an opinion, but to know, to be interiorly convinced of the facts that whether or not God was real. Now, many of you don't know this, but I wish it you would understand this to the very core of your being. In fact, the church wishes you would, so much so that she's going to canonize, make a saint a man who made this phrase popular, a guy named John Henry Cardinal Newman. He was an Anglican uh, bishop, and when he converted, literally tens of thousands of Anglicans became Catholic. Um, When John Henry Newman, uh, he would write, he was a brilliant intellectual, and he said in Oxford, he had this beautiful phrase where he would say, a thousand questions does not a single doubt make. And I want you to take that to heart this semester, this year you can question your faith. I encourage you to question your faith. Why? Because a questioning mind is a sign of a mind that is awake. God did not create you to be a being of intellect and will as well as having a body with emotions and all that stuff. He didn't create you with reason so you would check your reason at the door of the church. That's stupid. I don't want you to be stupid. I want you to ask questions. Asking questions does not is not off limits. It is not a sign of a mind that is rejecting faith. It's a sign of a mind that's awake and trying to reconcile what we know with what the church proposes for our belief. And this is another thing about the Catholic faith. We have a saying. You might not feel this being a child of Catholic parents, but the saying still runs true. The Catholic faith proposes, it never imposes. I'm going to say that again. The Catholic faith proposes, it never imposes. So throughout this semester, you are going to have a lot of things proposed for your belief. And you are encouraged to ask, to seek, to find answers to these questions. It would be annoying, annoying if I were sitting in your shoes and I sat there silently with all these questions. Because chances are, if you have a question, two, three, four other people in your class do as well. Now, I tell everyone who comes to my RCIA program, that's a program for people to become Catholic and get baptized. I have another program called Inclusion for Protestants who want to become Catholic. And we brought in about 100 Protestants into the Catholic Church and about 50 or 60 individuals into baptism since I started here five years ago. And I sit every one of them down and I say, ask me questions. Give me your objections. I'm a nerd. I'm not afraid. If I don't know it, I'll probably lie to you, but then come back with a better answer the next week uh, because I have a lot of insecurities that I'm working with counselors about. No, uh, so the whole idea, right? So I say that to him. Now, this is the coolest thing. A woman comes back to me after she becomes a Roman Catholic. I just saw her mass the other day with her son. And she said to me, you know, when I was at such and such a church, growing up, and when I became a Sunni Muslim uh, six years ago, and then when I converted um, to Catholicism, she said, you said something that changed my life forever. And I said, what was that? She said, a questioning mind is not a lack of faith, it's a sign of a mind that's awake. I said, okay, why is that a big deal? She said, because every other group told me that every question I asked was proof that I didn't have enough faith. And you came to me saying, asking questions is proof that you take your faith seriously. There was a man who hated Christians that he literally officiated over the first execution of a Christian for being a Christian. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was a brilliant theologian in the Jewish faith. And he saw these new upstarts, the sect called the Followers of the Way of the Lord Jesus, as a threat to his faith. So he had one guy stoned to death who happened to be the first deacon, a man named Stephen. And then he got a bunch of orders sanctioned by the Roman government to go to a town called Damascus and arrest and persecute them. On his way, he encounters Jesus, and he becomes the man that we know today as the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter, I, I, let me just state two things. I don't care what you we. Some of y'all got a weird history teacher who says, like, crazy, like, Christians have to believe the earth is the center of the Milky Way. And I'm like, what? And I literally had one of you students came up to me after the first life night, and they were like, is this true? And I was like, what in the what? So... <clears throat> Let me just tell you, a Roman Catholic priest taught Albert Einstein about the Big Bang. Albert Einstein did not believe the universe had a beginning. Father George Lemaitre proved mathematically before Edwin Hubble's uh, radio telescope detected the background scattering radiation and demonstrated the mathematical proof. Albert Einstein had to publicly apologize to Father George Lemaitre because earlier he said, uh, your math is impeccable, but your physics is awful. Then he had to publicly apologize and say, I was quite wrong about Father George. Lamitre, he was right and i was wrong now catholics are not afraid of science catholics aren't afraid of any of this stuff but i need you to understand this incredibly important point in your english lit class in history class especially when you're going through the crusades and you're like sure wish no one could see me now right and you're like oh good we're gonna talk about the inquisition that's fun um as we go through this stuff as you go through this stuff i want you to understand something No one has delivered a more devastating critique of religious hypocrites, of people who say one thing and live a completely different life than the prophets in the Old Testament. No one, Karl Marx, in the Communist Manifesto, can't touch the scathing report against hypocrisy that is found in sacred scripture. All right, you're not the first one to notice it. I'm not the first one to notice it. It's actually in the Bible. But also, St. Paul, and I'm going to leave you with this one thing. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is worthy of belief only if it's true. If this is not true, do not believe it. Run away from it. This is the advice of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. St. Paul is talking to a group of Christians in a town called Corinth in modern day Turkey. And he says to them, hope you like sandwiches. Just kidding. It's a turkey joke. Uh, he says to them, "Those dumb. Just pretend like I didn't say that. That was so dumb. It was so dumb clearly I had a Thanksgiving joke it's one month away too early you're right Halloween um no St. Paul writing to the church in Corinth I got to end on this note St. Paul writing to the church in Corinth says this they started to deny whether or not someone could rise from the dead now as Christians we believe the very body the very body that was crucified on the cross three days later rose from the grave why do we believe that Well, there's a whole bunch of convincing and converging evidences that point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We know more about the historicity of a man named Jesus of Nazareth than we do Julius Caesar. The earliest writings we have of Julius Caesar go all the way back to 900 AD. The earliest writings we have complete New Testaments going back to 200 AD, right? So St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I would encourage you to read it on your own. He says... Basically this. If people are not raised from the dead, then Christ was not raised from the dead. And if Christ is not raised from the dead, then you and I are still in our sins. And if we are still in our sins, of all people on the face of the earth, we are the most to be pitied. Translation. If the resurrection, that body that was crucified on Good Friday, did not raise from the dead, rise from the dead on Easter Sunday, then this is a joke. And of all people on earth, we're playing these ridiculous games. It is a joke, and we are pathetic. Unless it's true, then it is our job to go to the ends of the earth and to tell everyone the good news. That death is not the end. That injustice does not have the final word. That power and the love of power will eventually be converted by the power of love instead of the love of power so what Jesus Christ wants you to know as you begin your confirmation year is that number one that God is real that God knows you personally and even if you are going through depression, anxiety drama, hurt, pain, suffering if you yourself feel lost God wants you to know that the cross proves that he understands your pain now, many of you might hear those words. You look at a crucifix and you see a lily white Jesus with a kind of a smile in the corner of his mouth. That was nothing what it actually looked like. It was a horrific scene. But the idea was he has the scars to prove he's down. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. And he's not going anywhere. He knows that so many people in your life are dictating who you are and who you should be. When all he wants you to do right now is to know that you are known and loved. I tell this to everyone, and I'm going to end on this note. Every human being wants to be known and loved. Everyone in this room, man or woman, young or old, we all want to be known and loved. What does it mean to be loved but not known? That's superficial and weak, and we can't build a life on that. The other day I was at a Taylor Swift concert with 40,000 of my closest 14-year-old friends. (laughs) And I'm hanging out, singing Bad Reputation, just like everyone else. And it's the end of the concert, and I'm walking off, and I'm humming Love Story to myself, crying. Because, baby, just say yes. And I get to the exit, and Taylor Swift, this is true. Guys, Taylor Swift says this. This is incredible. She says, to all my fans. So I'm like halfway to the exit, and I turn around. I'm like, look, I'm a fan. What's up, Tay? And she says, to all my fans... I love you. I started to cry. I called my wife. I said, honey, I I don't, I don't know what to do. I've never been in a love triangle before. I was a chubby little homeschooler. I don't know what it's like to have so many, you know, women fight over me. So, like... Taylor Swift, when she looks at me, she sees two things. One, dollar signs two, the guy that keeps trying to slide into her DMs. It's fine. <laughs> Taylor Swift 13, why won't she reply to me if she loves me? Anywho, um, sorry, that's emotional. So think about that. If someone doesn't know you, but they say they love you, that's superficial and fake. But what about the opposite, to be known but not loved? What is that? I would tell you that is our greatest nightmare. Everyone in this room does not want to be... Known but not loved. What do I mean by that? I know you. I know the real you. How could anyone love you? And so what do we do? We, we, we act fake. We pose. We pretend to be one person with one group, another person to another group, to our parents, to our confirmation teachers, whoever it might be. And we do this because we are so desperate that if they find the real us, what if they don't like me as I really am? And so we fake it. But the beautiful news is that Jesus Christ knows exactly who you are. He knows you all the way down to the soles of your feet and loves you all the way to the stars. There is not a single thing you have ever done or suffered that Christ doesn't know about and will not ultimately join himself to and identify with you. Because here's the deal. If God is real, then what you're doing this year to prepare yourself for confirmation needs to be eyes wide open boots on, walking straight forward into that church so that you can know and love the God who knows and loves you first. Anything less than that, we're faking it. And Christ desires us to come to reality. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, I bless and praise your holy and sacred name. I thank you for the gift of every man and woman in this room. I already know that this year is going to be better than last year's class. They were monsters. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you, Lord Jesus. We ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to fall down upon each and every one of them, anointing them, stirring into flame the baptismal call that they all have. Jesus, in your matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Imagine this, you're walking down the street, and a Christian at a table with a bunch of pamphlets asks you, Have you been saved? What would you do? Would you know how to respond? Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew Swafford, and I'm co presenter along with Jeff Cavins in Ascension's new great adventure Bible study, Romans, the Gospel of Salvation. In this study, we teach you the biblical foundations for the Catholic teaching on salvation. How to explain salvation quickly and easily to non-Christians, what St. Paul really meant by works not leading to salvation, and how we can enter more deeply into Christ. Paul's letter to the Romans has been at the center of reflection, conversion, and controversy from the very beginning, and it's widely considered his greatest work. I invite you to start a small group in your home or parish and embark on this great adventure. Romans, the Gospel of Salvation is available for pre-order right now and for purchase on September 1st, 2019. To order, visit ascensionpress.com.
0: I would like to just kind of talk about the power of the Word of God in the ministry that we are trying to perform here for the church, right? And what I mean by that is every Roman Catholic who is baptized is called to be an evangelist. Right, You are called, according to your baptism, to be priest, prophet, and king in Christ, who is the absolute priest, prophet, and king. And what that means for us, these are not just religious words that we use to pad our self-esteem. These are specific offices and missions that every Catholic is called and equipped by God's divine grace to perform, okay? The prophetic office is the office of one who proclaims the word of God in season and out of season. The prophet is the mouthpiece of God. In fact, the earliest term in Hebrew for prophet was one who sees, a seer, a seer of visions. And as time evolved, you have the prophet Samuel. And literally, when it introduces the person Samuel, it says, in those days, there were no prophets, right? And it talks, or it had been a long time, been a long time since there were prophets in the land of Judea. But it talks about the prophet Samuel. It says they used to be called seers. The principal art of the prophet is to speak the word of God as it's been revealed to them. So the lector, first and foremost, before we do anything, has to have an absolutely humble disposition towards the word of God, towards sacred scripture. I remember when I was in high school and sometimes I would get asked or get, I used to be a sacristan in high school. I was a disaster, let me tell you what. Um, I always wore ill-fitting suits. Uh, but every so often a teenager who was supposed to be the proclaimer wouldn't show up. And so I remember <laughs> one senior would sit up in that chair and he would just stare dagger at me in the back and I'm like they were here I saw them but they would be ditching mass or something so I have to come up at the last minute and it looked like I was the idiot who forgot you know and I'm coming up all late and I realized certain essential truths with this that the best way to proclaim is to first meditate right because even though you might be an effective speaker right someone who can announce and enunciate well the idea is the way we want to change hearts, minds, and souls starts with a subjective witness of your heart. How have I humbled myself before sacred scripture? Now, I know you all know this, right? I'm telling you this so that you can tell a friend who maybe didn't show up today. Not you fancy people. We all know you know this. But there are some people who show up who have just read through the reading a couple times and that's it if we want to be not just good readers but effective proclaimers of the gospel scripture must become for us living and effective but it must become for us the source of our meditation because the bible is not just excellent words about god okay the bible is excellent words about god in god's own words Uh, Dehi Verbum, one of my favorite documents from Vatican II, talks about how the union of the human and the divine authorship is analogous to the union of the human and divine natures in the divine person of Jesus. And what they said was that the Holy Spirit is the principal divine author of sacred scripture. This is the doctrine of inspiration. The Holy Spirit is the principal author. But he worked through human authors, and this is the beautiful thing, and preserved their freedom as authors while uh, conveying all the truth and only what God wanted revealed. So they express everything and only those things that God wanted revealed, while still simultaneously being absolutely free as human authors, drawing on their culture, their own idiom, right, their own expression. So you have for us this mysterious and beautiful union of the human and divine. Uh, As I talk to young adults and to high school students throughout the country, many of them hate the Bible. They hate it. There is a bitter animosity, a dismissal of a stupid mythological book, right? They, th- they think it's just nonsense. You might as well be reading fairy tales, right? And so the very first thing I do whenever I am defending sacred scripture to these wonderful modern kids is I remind them, I hold up the Bible and I say, this is not a book. The word Biblia means collection of books, Authors, dozens upon dozens of authors, male as well as female authors. There are editors, there are compilers who gave us the final form of this book. There are the bishops who canonized these books, who declare that these are inspired and these are not. And so when we look at the history of the Bible coming to its modern form or its current form, Right, we are looking at literally thousands of years of oral tradition, of written tradition. We are looking at the blended, we are literally seeing empires rise and fall in these pages. We are hitting all different types of genres. So when I'm teaching this stuff to the RCIA folks and they've never read the Bible, right, and they've heard about it, maybe they've opened it up and they're like, I am so confused when they read this because they think, people come to it thinking, I'm gonna read it like a story. Right? And even with Jeff Cavan's Bible Timeline, which helps you line up the narrative books, it's still not a simple story. Anyone who's ever read Genesis chapter 1 realizes this is not a normal story. Genres and artistic craftsmanship. I remind people that paper was so scarce that when someone wrote, we didn't have a million useless words hanging out on publishers' bookcases and airport uh, shelves, right? The things that, like, you look at these books and you're like, no one is going to remember a single word written in these pages, Right? These people wrote maybe one book in their entire lives that would be read by just a few dozen, hundred people in their time. Now, obviously, because of modern technology, literally millions read the Bible. It's been the number one bestseller forever. But when they wrote, they didn't just write the words down. They crafted everything that they wrote. So for instance, many people don't know this, but... There's a a type of structure of writing called a chiasm. And the story of Noah is the largest chiastic structure in all of literature. It spans multiple chapters. And it is, if you don't understand that they're not just crafting, they're not just writing down words, but they're crafting something in the, even the way that they write it. That there's layers of meaning there, not esoteric, hidden, Gnostic meaning, but that the authors are trying to hit the peak of what they're doing. They're trying to either capture an event or relate some sacred truth, right? That it goes beyond our simple modern storytelling perspective, but our modern minds don't want to look at that. Our modern minds struggle with this. That's why I say that the fruit of effective proclamation starts with my own personal humility and meditation because the one who revealed it wishes to speak to our community, our, excuse me, our communion. Pope John Paul says, I use the word communion, not community, because I don't want people thinking the church is a sociological reality, it is first a theological reality. So when you stand up and proclaim the word of God, it must be the end, the fruit of authentic Christian meditation. Because only then can you understand As a good reader, which words to emphasize? When to slow down, when to speed up. Whenever I would prep teenagers for reading the the readings, I would say, a terrible reader is one who mumbles or goes fast. A decent reader is one who goes slow, right? Enough that people can hear, right? I said, but a great reader is one in the reading knows what to emphasize. The fruit of Christian meditation coming humbly before the scriptures is looking at what the human author is trying to express in his or her freedom and what God is ultimately trying to get that. Now, I would tell you, you should go one step further than just, you know, in the week before reading your scripture over and over again and meditating on it. I would encourage you to fast. At the bare minimum, fast from midnight till the time you proclaim. All you people at the life team, ask getting a little antsy, but I would encourage you. I would encourage you to do some spiritual um, asceticism to prepare yourself for the reading of the Word of God. We shall not approach the text of the Word of God so casually when we're in our community, in the midst of the liturgy. Something has to be different, right? We're, this is not a performance, right? This is a proclamation. And it's not just about excellent enunciation. It's about converting the skeptic who's sitting 10 rows back. And you can be the person. They can say, man, when he was reading that text, when she was saying that, that just stood out to me. And it might be because the word of God on its own is holy and anointed, even the book of Leviticus. It might be that all of this stuff is wonderful and effective in and of itself. But God longs to work through his human instruments, especially those who are faithful. You come before him in prayer, it could be because of your fasting, because of your praying, because of your meditating, because of your humility, because of your boldness, that you become the instrument by which God uses to change lives, to change lives. Uh, A um, Protestant theologian had this great line where he said, Uh, If it takes a circus to bring people to church, it'll take a circus to keep them into the church. As I've grown since my days of youth ministry and whatnot, I've always been a nerd and I've always focused on education and and meaning, I just talked all the time. Uh, I, I, I always focused on that so, so much. But one of the things that I've discovered is a renewing of the beauty of the liturgy. That the liturgy is not something we tinker with in order to generate feelings of sentimentality. We've been doing that for a long time. Oh, don't change this, don't take that away. The people like it. And it's like, yes, but here's the question. Does God, well, if I'm okay, God's okay. I don't think that's how the equation works, right? If I'm okay, God must be totally fine with it, right? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, Cheryl Crow. It can be that bad. God wants to be glorified in the liturgy. Remember, the word liturgy in Greek means a public work. Literally, it was like an assembly, like the gathering together of God's people, public, or of any people, a state body, an assembly in Athens, was called a liturgy of the congregation, right? And we use those terminologies to describe what God was doing in the midst of us. So it's not us doing this. If it was us doing the liturgy, then guess what? All the Protestants would be right in their objection going back to Martin Luther and John Calvin. And what is that objection? Catholics, by their sacramental worldview, are adding to the work of Christ. If it's ours, and it's what we're doing, and it's ultimately for how we react and feel during the Mass or during the liturgy, whatever liturgy it might be, then it becomes all about us, then the Protestants are right, then the Reformers were right to revolt because we are adding to the work of the cross. But if the liturgy is God's work on behalf of his people, then we aren't adding to the cross. The cross is being added to us. And so when we come to the holy sacrifice of the mass, we come literally to the representation of his once-for-all death 2,000 years ago. That's why St. Paul says this bread that we, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This cup that we drink, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And so we come, so one of the big things when I'm teaching uh, Protestants who are really struggling, I had two semesters ago, I had a whole class of Reformed Baptists, and some of them were angry. Angry that Jesus was pulling them into the Catholic Church, that their whole life, they believed, was the Antichrist and the, you know, whatever, Babylon. And so when we're working through this, we start talking about the sacramental worldview. Why do we have the sacraments? And I read to them Romans chapter 5, where St. Paul compares and contrasts Adam with Christ. And he says that Adam was a type of the one to come. This is where we get in Catholic theology what we call typology, where we read the Old Testament in light of the new and the new in light of the old. We see how they inform each other, because this is how the apostles read scripture. They looked at the rock that that was in the wilderness that Moses struck, and they say that rock was Christ, and all of Israel were baptized, into the rock right and they talk about how moses picked up the church fathers and talk about how moses they came to these waters in the middle of the desert and they're all happy that they can drink some water and then what happens they taste it and the water is bitter so what does god command him to do take a tree and throw it into the waters and the waters becomes pure and sweet and the church father said this is the cross encountering baptism as the cross plunges into the waters it renews the waters, makes them sacred so that when I get plunged in the waters I die and the bitterness of my sin is left behind and now I'm sweet in the new wine of the gospel basically I'm made new, this church father saw this well St. Paul is the one who begins to craft this whole narrative where he says look at Adam and his trespass and how it wounded all of humanity look at Christ and his free gift on the cross and how it's here to save all humanity he goes back and forth and he constantly holds up the contrasting between Adam, who's a failed type of Christ, and Jesus, who's a successful type of Adam, right? And he keeps going back and forth to these whole things. And then, see, here's the problem. We have chapter six. And so we all stop reading at the beginning of chapter six, and we're like, I'll read that tomorrow in my devotional. But St. Paul didn't have chapters. St. Paul didn't have verses. The one chapter flows easily into the next. And what is the next thought? Do you not know that those of you who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And if we have been united with him in a death like his, so too shall we be united with him in a resurrection like his. St. Paul saw baptism as the way our faith in the death and resurrection of Christ applied to me. In fact, we could call it what the author of Ephesians uses, this beautiful preposition, in Christ. I would encourage you to read for your homework tonight, Ephesians chapter one, and just underline every time the author uses the word in in christ in him in the beloved in the son over and over again because that's the theology of christian uh sacraments is that through the sacraments and my faith i am now inserted into the mystery of christ so when i come here for the liturgy and i come to worship the triune god in the mass i it's not my performance that makes the mass valid it's god working in and through us so it's not that the work of the cross is constantly, well, uh, a bunch of failures, We've got to do the work of the cross all over again. No, the work of the cross treasury, the treasury of the merits of Christ are being applied ever anew because you and I need it ever anew. Every time we come to the liturgy, God manifests himself to us. As St. Teresa of Avila used to say, if you want to hear God talk to you, read scripture. If you want to see a miracle, go to mass. How beautiful that you and I Get to participate in the hearing of God's voice into our congregation. To stand and proclaim His word can change lives. One of my favorite preachers, a guy named Francis Chan, he's a, I don't know what he is right now, but he started a bunch of churches in San Francisco. But he had this line where he said Imagine someone told you, I want you to go to the nearest cemetery. And I want you to pray fervently to raise one person from the dead. Not the whole cemetery, just one person, right? And he said, who would you take with you? Who would you take with you in order to raise the dead? Would you take a sick band? A laser light show? Fog machine. Now this guy is a non-denominational person, right? So he's speaking to a non-denominational crowd, right? So he says this, he's like, what would you take? Hillsong united would you take this would you take that and he said i'll tell you who i'd take i'd take that person who is known for always coming into the presence of god because to raise the dead is a miracle and then he said this and i i will never forget this he said and isn't that what conversion is taking someone who is dead in their sin and bringing them to life in christ Isn't that a greater miracle because it's, you know, God saying, I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh? Like, isn't that a new thing that I can't accomplish on my own power? Even more radical because it's spiritual, not just the physical reanimating of a corpse, but it's the changing of the destiny of an immortal being. And he says, yet when we come to these worship services, when we come to these things together, what do we ask? Was it good? What do we mean, was it good? How do I feel when I leave? And then he says, how does God feel when you leave? That you came in to worship him or that you came for yourself? And these words hang over me. I think about these words in the middle of the night and I wake up and I go to the bathroom And then I go, because I'm now in my 30s, right? Once you hit 35, you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. You no longer have a left and a right knee. You now have a good and a bad knee, right? So I'm stumbling around and I go and I lay down trying to be super quiet, not wake my wife. And these things just run through my mind like a crazy person. I should stop watching so many YouTube videos before I go to bed. But these things just hang in my head. And I think, do we understand the power behind them? That this isn't an office, a a minor order, right, as it used to be called, that I get to do because I, you know, I deserve it. This is an absolutely privileged position. Someone on any given Sunday or Saturday evening or daily mass, someone sitting in these pews could have their lives changed because you were fasting and praying for that person so i would encourage you not just to proclaim the word of god from a heart of christian prayer but to fast and to pray that your proclamation leads to the conversion of someone in our pew how awesome would it be when you stand before christ's throne in judgment and people you don't even know come out and say because of him because of her witness i responded i converted I was dead, but now I'm alive, was lost, and now I'm found. Would that that would be the motivation of every lector, of every altar server, of every usher, and of every clergyman who ascends the altar. I am privileged to speak God's word. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the midst of the waters and then God said let there be light and there was light and God saw that it was good he separated the light from the darkness the light he called day the darkness he called night evening came morning followed the first day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him all things came to be, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of of grace and truth. Jesus, your name spoken is like a spreading perfume filling this place, drawing us ever closer to your most sacred heart. Jesus, now, through the intercession of Venerable Bede and St. Paul and every evangelist who has gone before us in our great Catholic tradition, Jesus, draw us ever closer to your word inspired. May we contemplate its most sublime truths. May we humble ourselves before its teachings. May we desire the God it speaks of. The God of Abraham, Isaac, of Israel, of Jacob, of Jesus. Lord Jesus, may we, this day, grow in the grace and truth of our baptismal call to be prophets in the midst of a culture that has wandered away from sound doctrine and wandered into myths. A culture that cultivates for itself teachers that suits its own liking who with itching ears seeks out those teachings that confirm what it already believes rather than a church that proclaims the truth. Jesus, I trust in you.